Welcome to another interview and segment of Israel Tech. I'm here with Gideon Rotem, uh, the CEO and founder of Diuk. Thank you for joining us. Well, pleasure to be here. So first thing I want to say is that I came in here at about 8.30, and what I admire is that everyone's working. There's people here at 8.30 in the morning, and we've done many of these interviews, and usually we show up like 9, 9.15, I got here earlier, and um, half the office is working. Oh, they'll be in late. Oh, it's their off day. They don't, whatever. So maybe like one of the first things, obviously, first I want you to introduce yourself, what Diuk does, but definitely want to go into kind of the culture and how is that related to the technology. So maybe first you can tell us about Diuk, and I love the name, and you can tell us about it. And I'd love to hear more about what's unique here about your work, uh, your workspace. Okay, so Diuk, and, and there, if there's Hebrew speakers out there, they, they already know what we're about. Diuk is the Hebrew word for precision, which you understand. And we're trying really to say, what are we doing? What are we what is our emphasis of what we're doing? It's providing a location solution that's about precision, ubiquity, and scalability. And Diuk really distills that precision element. Now, Diuk is founded by myself uh, and Anand Spak in 2019. And since then, we've been taking on people, etc. We're experienced entrepreneurs, as you can see from my uh, uh, so well-tailored uh, uh, kufur here. Does this mean I'm inexperienced then? Because uh, I'm... <laughs> Well, or you're very well-kept. That's okay. what I can say, right? <laughs> either very well-kept or inexperienced. So either you're both, experienced both or options. not well-kept. <laughs> both options, but that's why I said I've experienced. Okay, so we're 24 years doing this. And one of the things I think to tie it to your question is 24 years doing this is that we have a very a varied workforce in ages. Okay, so it goes all the way from, we've, we've had people 18 years old, and we've had people 67 years old. And it covers those 50 years. And when you have 50 years and it's not a group of everybody's 26, people tend to work what's comfortable to them, and therefore you have a large piece of the company here at 8 a.m. And then you have a different piece here at 7.30 p.m. So you have a full working day, not everybody here is you know, 14 hours a day, right. or you try not to do that continuously because a startup is a marathon, a startup is not a sprint, but that's how you get people here at 8 a.m. Actually, I wanna talk about that, marathon versus sprint, because one of the challenges that a lot of startups are having, especially now, the last year and a half with the economy or whatnot, is how are they gonna manage their burn rate not knowing when the next round of funding comes mm -hmm. in? So in a sense, there is a sense of sprint. We gotta demonstrate revenue, demonstrate value as fast as we can, so we can try to get more money in order to last longer and have more opportunity to grow and scale and get to a point where we're cash flow positive mm -hmm. and profitable. Um, so how do you balance a burn rate versus like, you know what I mean, to not have to go give it more equity or try to raise more money, or and obviously you're trying to, as fast as possible, bring cash in the door to cover your expenses and to be able to expand. How do you work that out? Okay, so, so the, the real, the, the important word in your question there was balance. And, and I see the whole startup as a balancing act. And the balancing act is always run as fast as you can considering the resources you have. And remember that it's a marathon. Okay, I'll go back to that marathon. You know, this is 24 years. This is our fourth company together. We've learned that it's not a sprint. And even if you think it's a sprint, there's always the next sprint and the next sprint and the next sprint. When you get that perspective that it's a, it's a combination of multiple sprints, you understand it's a marathon. So in our case this year, what we really did, uh, we're now 30 people in the company. If you go back to my investor presentations 18 months ago, I would have said that we would be 40 or 50 people in the company today. So about 15 months ago, we said, wait, 
This is the economy. This is what we, we see in terms of our ability to raise funds. This is the achievables. What do we really need to do in order to get our investors to put in more money, other investors to put in more, more money? And we change the, basically the investment pattern to be 30 people today, but you know, head over the water, smiling, working, and not you know, in, in, in distress. Goes back, marathon, plan your next uh, 30 kilometers down the road because there's a long road down there. Do you ever worry that 30 kilometers is enough planning? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I fully agree. Uh, yeah. And you can't see everything. And unlike right. a marathon where you know it's 42 right, exactly. kilometers and 197 meters, here you don't you, know you, how long your marathon is. Which is, is why people which, are sprinting. Which makes it, but it's dangerous to sprint full force. Yeah. So, so it's a combination of things that, that I think the balancing act comes from senior management and how it perceives the situation. Uh, and you never know till the end if you were right or wrong. It's you know, but that that's the beauty of the the beauty of the beast. So you're a veteran in the tech industry. So if mm -hmm. there were let's say a younger you or a younger uh, founder coming up, what would you tell him or her? Some like similar like you know maybe they, they raised a few million dollars, and now they have that burn rate and there's that marathon versus sprint and and in a tougher economy let's say, what what advice would you give to them given that they don't have the experience that let's say you have doing this for many years. Don't be afraid to make uh, hard decisions. Okay, hard decisions means cutting burn rate. Hard decisions mean go slow or go fast as long as you understand what you're doing. So understand the decision you're making. And on the extreme of that advice, I would say there's always the next company. Well, there you go. All right. Awesome. So, so it's not life and death. Yes, it's, it might sound, you know, there's the... Uh, there's a very famous saying, you know, I think it's an American saying, and you'll need to find who, who I'm quoting here, but it's not life and death. It's something much more important. It's money. <laughs> <laughs> so people get confused by that. Uh -huh. So I will reiterate it the other way around. Investors don't listen. It's not life and death. Right. You got the marathon, you got the sprint, you're trying to balance it out. But mm -hmm. then you have a team mm -hmm. that doesn't understand your whole vision and your whole drive. Now, you do have a unique team here, as I was saying when we opened up, that I was impressed by how many people are actually in here at their desks working well before 9 a.m. That's awesome. What do you do, what is it unique about your team or in general that you see kind of in the industry in order to get people to trust you when it's time to sprint, when it's time to marathon, and to know that even though that you may not, um, you know, you, you have a burn rate and you see a vision for, for, for the company so they know that their career is at least secure, that they don't need to go jump ship, you don't lose talent. How do you balance all that within your workspace? Because it's clearly they're dedicated. Okay, so I don't think the the single employee has the ability to see what the company is going and where what they're doing, what the company is doing as a whole. So I think that the crucial piece here, especially in small companies, and, and it's a different, you know, I've had a company that was 200 employees and most, I like the zero to 50 better in uh -huh. terms of what I, I like the personal touch. It's getting every one of the employees and every one of the team members on board, meaning they have to believe what they're doing is important to the general mission, uh -huh. okay? And to understand that it makes sense what they're doing. Now, when everybody on board understands that what they're doing makes sense and what their plan makes sense, 
they can, okay, if my plan makes sense, I guess his plan makes sense or her plan makes sense, I guess everybody's plan makes sense because you can't have the, the every employee as a review committee of what's happening in the company. Please, see, Mr. CEO, share with us your vision and let us critique it. Well, you don't really have the tools to do that. That's not your job. You're supposed to write an algorithm, to write a software, to, to do a physical experiment, uh, to deploy it at a customer site, and you have to understand what you're doing and see what you're doing makes sense. And when all those pieces together Makes sense, the company makes sense. How do you get people to buy into the vision? Uh, because I, I wonder, when I see you know, people come to apply, um, and I'm thinking, I'm an employer myself, and I'm like, you're applying by me, and you're applying by other places that mm -hmm. do different technology and different work, so it's like, are you vision agnostic, leadership agnostic in a sense? Uh, how do you uh, attract the kind of talent that are looking for vision, or is it really everyone's looking for it, you just need to provide the right vision to the right person? or do you do it as a group? How do you build that vision so people feel that they're getting tremendous value out of the work that they're doing, that they're getting meaning out of it, they know there's something greater and they're dedicated for the longer term? We're what is called today a deep tech company. And I didn't necessarily say call today because if you go back and uh, you know been doing this for 25 years, uh, all startups were deep tech startups 25 years ago. Right. Today, uh, only those that develop technology and develop the technology themselves and not use it are called deep tech. So as a deep tech company, we're really selling the, the challenge of the technology we're developing and the real world problem that it's solving. Now, specifically, Diuk is solving the issue of indoor location. Okay, and indoor location, you know, everybody's familiar with GPS, everybody's familiar with, uh, with what can be done with GPS. And when you think about it, 90% of human activity is indoors. Mm -hmm. So everything you know about GPS, about Waze and Google Maps and taking you places, etc., is about 10% of human activity. What about that other 90% of right. human activity? That, that's what Duke is about. How do you create a GPS-like uh, environment? The ability to know where you are, to know where your assets are, to know where things are moving in this 90% of human activity. So selling that challenge and showing that we're developing a unique technology to solve that, that's how we sell at this stage of the company. By the way, I think three years from now, company's much bigger, uh, deployed many places, the business becomes the essence, not the technology. You sell it differently. And in that respect, across the lifetime of a company, the vision changes and how you sell it to employees, stakeholders, investors, et cetera, changes. So you have your team, you brought in the mission and you're helping people, you're selling the vision of, it's important that 90% of the time that people are getting around using proper GPS internally. So here's my question to you. Can you help me get out of Ikea easily? Because Ikea, I feel like I get in there and I can't get out. Is that the kind of solutions you're solving, or is it more not for the end consumer, more for B2B? Uh, in principle, I can help you get out of IKEA. Can you help my wife get out of IKEA? And I can help your wife get out of <laughs> IKEA. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how I can help you on the credit card side, but you know, I'll physically get you out. But that's in principle because the more uh, interesting challenge we believe is the touchless tracking of everything that's in IKEA. So the customer for Duke is really IKEA, not the right. IKEA customer. It means so the every pallet in exactly. IKEA can have a tag. 
mm -hmm. or it can be marked. It's a connected, uh, connected asset or non-connected asset. So if it's a non-connected asset, that means any box in IKEA can have a Duke tag on it, and then you know exactly where it is. So by the way, when you're thinking navigating in IKEA, when you go to an IKEA mm -hmm. port and say, okay, where is this in this table, you can get directly uh, uh, navigated to the Brilliant. specific uh, product you're looking to. You don't have to, if, you know, and all of us have done IKEA, so it's the aisle 17 number, whatever. No, no, forget that. Mm -hmm. Things get moved so around, you're, you're things always, get shifted you're around. Always, you're B2B. You can know wherever every asset is. Because I always time. like, so like, obviously, I was thinking about, when I think about your technology, I think about it as a consumer. Wow, I'd love to do that. Or um, I was at a Phillies game the other summer mm -hmm. with my daughters, and you know, we entered in the wrong gate, third base, and we had to mm -hmm. go to first base. And it would have been great if they just followed the GPS and up and down, and here's my seat. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it's the mass logistics of what's going on in a stadium, or the logistics of IKEA, or logistics of a Walmart or any of these other large stores or I'm sure warehouses and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, what is the main points that you're solving? Because I can think about one where is is inventory, another thing is theft, how you wanna make sure nothing leaves a door. Another thing is can you, if it's, uh, is it ethical to track the physical locations of employees, especially if you're, let's say, have a warehouse and you actually need to know where they are, mm -hmm. um, or an assembly line, or let's say, as a car manufacturer. So. Your technology, how do, how do you see companies actually using it? Um, if you can kind of work us into that, and where do you think, and are there certain places where you think they're not going to use it? Do you think there's any ethical challenges, at least with tracking people or things like that? We'll start with the ethical challenge, maybe. Uh, as with all technology, the question is really, what do you do with it? Uh, in terms of privacy, there is always an issue with location. Uh, I will note that we are the most ethical location solution because we do not take your private information and use it to find where you are. We only use uh, basically uh, information from the modem of the radio inside, let's say, your, your uh, scanner, inside your phone, etc., right. and use that for location. So I know nothing about the user. Right. So really the ethical decisions are, are moved to somebody else. And there's issues with location. I'm not, you know, location, is, it is what it is, and you have to think very carefully how you deploy it and what you do with it when you're dealing with people. But Duke is about tracking assets, okay? So basically, what we're doing, if you're looking through the ethical sense, really protects people because what Duke will enable, really, is, is, uh, is a supply chain where at any stage of the supply chain, you know where the goods are, you know which goods are which, so there's a, you limit theft, you, you limit counterfeit. A lot of things you can't really do today when, when you can't, don't know where things are all the time. So Diuk, by touchless tracking, enables you to know where your goods are at all time. And that's why we chose the supply chain as our first vertical. Remember, we supply location. Our business model is location as a service, okay? So we are providers of a service of giving you, based on a subscription, location of your assets, we could have gone to healthcare. Where is the hospital bed? Where, where is the uh, MRI? Where is the uh, different you know, hospital uh, assets? But the supply chain is such a huge challenge and it's so uh, open to innovation and to improving uh, visibility that that's where we're going. 
So your technology, you said you're touchless. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means that today it's <coughs> not touchless. How, how do people know in the supply chain today? Where, where, where are you? Where are things? Everybody has scanners and everybody, everything has barcodes and everybody's continuously scanning. So it's not touchless. Your, your level of visibility is dependent on how many gatekeepers you put in. Okay, so if you say, I'll scan it when it enters the warehouse, I'll scan it when it leaves the warehouse, I'll scan it on Tuesdays, I'll scan it on Thursday afternoons, okay? Those are your points of contact. And those are that called is touch. tracking. That's called touch. That's touching. Okay. With the yoke, you, you put a tag on day one or on minute one, mm -hmm. and the whole that's time, it. continuous. Continuous. Continuous tracking. You will look for the information wherever you need it, but it's continuous, real time. Uh, location. You know, there's a term, real-time location services. Right. The only real, you know, accurate term there is the word services. Because the location is not precise enough. Right. And it's never real-time. It's right. based on scanning. So what is this RTLS? It shows you, you know, everybody knows certain... It's called marketing, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's well. very good marketing, right? Uh, but services is the persuasion right thing. Persuasion is in... Exactly. Duke is, is real-time, okay, right. at any given time, location, and we, by the way, we don't do the services. We uh -huh. go to the services company to do the services. We do the real-time location. So Duke is RTL. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's get a little more into your technology than when I talk about your team. So let's say you're at a warehouse. I'm just thinking IKEA for a second, right? And you got, I know, I'm using this example because I know many people can relate to this. Um, they got pallets and it's stacked. Mm -hmm. Each one would have its own tag that mm -hmm. you know where it is in real time. How do you know? It's one thing to know so precise that you know where this thing is in the building, in a in a bird's eye view, two two dimensional. But it's things stacked. Would you be able to know this one's on top of this one, on top of this sure, one, on top sure. of this one, and to what act to what accuracy and how many centimeters you'll be able to know in depth? And is your accuracy better when it comes to a plane as opposed to let's say um, a, a vertical or stacking? And and then, yeah, sorry. All good questions. Mm. Uh, and there are about five of them now, so let, let's see how good my memory was. <laughs> there are more I want to ask, but I saw. So, so we'll, we'll start with this. Uh, probably the most important feature of the technology is that you don't deploy hardware. You don't deploy infrastructure, okay? There is Wi-Fi all there, already there. You go into IKEA, there's Wi-Fi in IKEA. There's the IKEA Wi-Fi. So you don't need to deploy a new infrastructure to use Duke. Uh, there are eight plus billion access points out there. Okay, think about that number. Right. There are more access points in the world than people. And it's even more extreme considering uh, large parts of the world don't have Wi-Fi. Right. But in the parts of the world where you have Wi-Fi, there's more than eight billion access points. Okay, so take that number of access points and that's what we use in order to get the locations. Because we're a, a physical layer technology, okay, is that is based on a concept in physics called interferometry, okay? Interferometry is measuring the phase delay between two rays of uh, coherent light or between two coherent rays of light, okay? That's interferometry. We measure that phase delay and translate that into angles which we use to triangulate and get a position, ah, okay? okay? So now we go into IKEA. We use their existing infrastructure, right, to get an XY. Now, what's the nice thing about coherent rays of light? If they're positioned, the antennas of the access point are positioned like this, I get an XY. But if they're positioned like this, 
I get a YZ. Ah, okay, and so that's that, how you're able to do the plane in the three right. D graph. Right. So, so the technology in itself is two D. Got it. But we do two measurements, and combine so them, and we get three D. What's even nicer than that? Because Wi-Fi is based on the two point four uh, gigahertz and the five gigahertz, and the designer of the access points like to have separation between the antennas. Every let's say a Cisco access point, which is fifty percent of the enterprise market has one set of antennas like this, one set of antennas like this. So inherently, by the way those 8 billion access points are spread worldwide, I can give you XY, I can give you YZ, I do the combination, I can tell you fourth palette on the right, etc. that. How accurately? We're dealing with angles. Now, what, what do you think about when you're angles? If you're looking into the horizon, and it's an angle, and you move five uh, meters to the side, the horizon is still in the same place. What that means is your accuracy will be dependent on your distance from the transmitter, okay? So if you have an access point 50 meters from you, you'll be able to do this accurate location, okay? 50 centimeters, 60 centimeters, 80 centimeters. But if your access points are 20 meters from you, 60 feet from you, okay, you can do 10 centimeters. Okay, you bring them in closer, you, get, you become more accurate. But in general, always under one meter. So always within, within the human, uh -huh. you're standing, okay, going back to your IKEA issue, you're always standing in front of the right palette in the right uh, order, and you know you want the third one from the top. So you develop all this technology, it's fascinating. How do you assemble the right team or the right engineers um, in order to help you with such precision? It, it's, 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 it's really piece by piece, you know. It's, it's finding the right people, it's getting the right people committed, it's, it's learning slowly what's your most important path and, and investing in that path. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, um, we started by developing a few patents, and this was when Iran uh, and myself were looking for funding. By the way, uh, everything we we're doing is, uh, is supported by intellectual property. We have 10 granted U.S. patents, another nine U.S. patents in application. Uh, so it is unique IP here, what people are working on. And then you start looking for the right person. Now, I think the advantage of being in the business for 25 years is that you know that there is no typecast of what the right person is. Okay, so uh, the company today, 30 people, 20 engineers, half of our engineers are women. Uh, uh, on a personal note, uh, we like hiring uh, uh, female engineers. We think they bring uh, perspectives and, uh, and uh, I don't think you can do generalizations of female engineers, but the female engineers well, we Well, I, I think you should generalize bring, because, okay, so it's very unusual that 50% it is unusual. It's actually extremely rare. I would say it's beyond unusual. Um, was that something, was that a pursuit? Like, did you set like a quota? Or, or were you saying there's something about a female engineer that's at least, at least specifically for your technology that you find that might have advantages over male engineers? So we're going to just give an uh, advantage or we're going to pursue or open jobs so maybe more to these, um, to women engineers. I'm just curious, how does, how, was there a conscious decision or did it happen naturally? Because like my company, like we're marketing companies, but like we're overwhelmingly women, over mm -hmm. 
but that just happened naturally. There wasn't any intent or anything. Um, but marketing does, does skew women, does skew female. So my question is, engineering skews strongly male. Uh, was it intentional or did it just kind of naturally happen with the kind of characteristics that you're looking for in an engineer? I think it naturally happened. I, uh, I can't say there was no quota and there was no preferential treatment, but on the other hand, there was no uh, counter bias. Okay. It wasn't a bias that said, I want to bring my friend from the, right. uh, but from the army or somebody that looks like me, or, you know, by definition, when you're uh, 25 year employees, most of the employees don't look like you. Right. Okay. Most of the employees don't, don't behave like you. So you're training the whole group. Okay. The whole group, there's no bias. Let's look for the best person there. Now we're, as I said, a deep tech company. So our female engineers, uh, we have PhDs, you know, we have PhDs in physics, we have PhDs in, in double E, we have PhDs in mathematics. So, so there's PhDs here. There's, there's a lot of physicists here. Uh, it just happens. Uh, by the way, after a certain, when you reach a certain stage, I think it's easier for other women engineers to join when they see that there's a big group of women engineers. So it's very interesting yeah, to look the, at that the, point the science, two years science. ago when you said, okay, you were 15 people and there were six females. Uh, I think it was, that's the interesting point. Today, when we're 30 and of the engineering group, half are women, it's less interesting because it's obvious. Right. And it's totally, you know, it's just there. It's part, it's part of how the company grows. We recruit people, et cetera. But, but there is no bias. It changes over time as well, et cetera. We're trying to create continuity. We're trying to get people to stay longer terms, which is something that in right. this industry, people like moving around. I don't like that. Oh, it, either. It takes me a, a long time to teach people to train. to train and to get value. So for them to say, you know, I want to move on. Uh, and people move on usually only for personal Let's put this one. People move on for personal reasons. They're when you moving, say personal, you mean money? personal, I mean uh, the family's moving to a different area of the country, right. etc. There's nothing I can do, and I accept that. If uh, if they move on because they the life they don't find the work interesting, then we failed. Right. That's what I you know I put a big right. red yeah, circle it, around that and let's and, drill down into the what, bottom of that and find out left. what happened and avoid that happening again. You know, this thing was interesting actually. Uh, that's unique to Israeli tech is uh, I say so there's one of the advantages, there's, there's some advantages of Israel being so geographically small. That's true. Uh, and one of them is the fact that if they get up and move, they can still commute. Right, <laughs> like, right. You know, we, we, like I was like, you know, when uh, it's 80% of the workforce within like an hour drive, something like that right. in general. Now specifically, you know, you know we're, we're situated here near Hashalom uh, uh -huh. train station and it's not by chance. It's on purpose. Right. Okay, we've said, our office will always be close to a train station. Correct. Right. Okay. And that means that we have employees coming from uh, all the way north of Haifa, okay, which is what, 110 kilometers from here where the employee is, Kirat Atta, all the way south to, uh, to Rehovot and to Jerusalem. Yet still, you know, with all the talk of hybrid work and commute, etc. The closer your workforce is to the office, the easier it is to bring everybody to the office. Right. People don't like to do a, a two-hour commute, and I understand why. I right. don't like to do a 32-minute commute sometimes, and I live six kilometers from here, so it should be a 10-minute commute. But traffic is traffic. Right. Okay, so just one last question about your team, and then mm -hmm. kind of you're talking about kind of uh, how you got here, and we want to go back because you do have a 
fascinating career that really exemplifies the Israeli tech ecosystem. Um, you hinted or touched on that there are some advantages of a female engineer, mm -hmm. but you didn't say what they were. Can you tell me, tell me what, what, in your perspective and experience, what do you think on average in general um, a female engineer can bring to the table more than let's say a male engineer? More listening, better teamwork. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the, the bigger the problem, uh, the bigger the problem, the more teamwork you, ne you need. You're not gonna solve the, the very difficult issues we're solving by, by some uh, hotshot, okay? Uh -huh. It's not a question of writing the software as fast as you can or, or even as elegant as you can. Uh -huh. There's, it's developing the right algorithms it's a lot of interaction between different algorithm teams, and, and all this needs a lot of listening, a lot of, uh, a lot of cooperation, a lot of working together. That's awesome, that makes a lot of sense. Which tied, again, to your question, why are people in the office? Right. Because you can't work together and cooperate, et cetera. Right. Or I haven't found out. Right. I, I don't want to be, yeah, no, you know, well, we, can't, but I can't, haven't found out a way to do it if you're not together working on it. Yeah, we talked about this off camera, uh -huh. that uh, you and I, uh, because I mentioned it was great to see so many people here working so early. And uh, I was like radically anti-remote. And then Corona happened. And then I was forced to do remote. And of course, mm -hmm. we're digital marketing, so everyone can work remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I became an advocate of it. And I totally understand, though, like when you need to be, what you're doing, the deep tech that you're doing, it's mm -hmm. not what we're doing by any means. Uh, you need people to come and collaborate and be able to do that. And so I, that's actually very, uh, that. It's very special that you have that unique sense of collaboration, making sure that you're near a train and all that. So I think that's, I think that's terrific. It's opened a lot of other opportunities. Hopefully other people will hear from what you're doing here and your experience, um, and particularly the advantage, some of the advantages of hiring um, female engineers, that they may be able to see that too and may help their technology also. That needs a lot of collaboration. Mm -hmm. So you've half engineers are, are women. That's terrific. But I also notice you have a lot of people from the former Soviet Union. Um, so is there something also unique about kind of just your culture or what you're looking to do in a team that happens to attract um, many people from the former Soviet Union? Well, I, I don't, we're looking for a lot of hard core physics and math. Right, okay. And when you're looking for that group, you, you find a lot of uh, ex-Soviet Union emigres, children of where, where the emphasis in their education was on, you know, on the sciences, etc. So I think uh, it's interesting. I've never checked it out, but I think in society, if you look across the board, you'll see a higher percentage when you're looking into physics graduates, math graduates, etc. Uh, it came with, you know, the professions that the, the, the Jews of, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, etc. had when they came here. Uh, a funny story. Previous company, 2006, ex, uh, my previous company's name was Extracom, and it was, uh, I was, I received an investment from the National Investment Fund of Kazakhstan, okay? And I went to Kazakhstan a few times. They were my investors, etc. I did board meetings there, etc. And one, one day they took us to a center like Herzliya here, high-tech center, and they did a, and they did really a question, you know, how do we develop a high-tech sector in Kazakhstan? And, you know, Basically, you're saying, okay, you need funding. You can do that through government funding, etc. You need you need uh, good ideas and the people to push them, and you need engineers. 
And then a Kazakh reporter put his hand up and said, how are we going to have engineers if they all went to Israel? Ah. <laughs> you see? So that's the issue in Kazakhstan. In Israel, it's, I'm not saying anything new, but, you know, the importance of the, the, the post-Soviet immigration to Israel in the, developing, in the development of the high-tech uh, sector, and you definitely can see it in Diuk. So probably a third of the people in Diuk have some type of relationship to, to that immigration. It could be children of, right. but still, when you look, okay, but why did you do five points math and five point physics and five point computer science and, you know, in your matriculation exams, how did, oh, because my parents insisted. Do okay? you think, um, I don't know if the right person asked, but do you think that the cultures you're seeing them and their children push much more into math and science, which is awesome? Do you think that culturally maybe it has now expanded to people not from the FSU that are now more likely to go in science and math because there's such an influx of people from the former Soviet Union? Well, I think... Or vice versa, because something I found fascinating, I was reading, I was reading about Israeli demographics trends, mm -hmm. and people thought that, um, you know, Israel's dem demography was going to collapse, um, which the rest of the Western world is, Israel's not, thank God. Um, and one of those reasons that they said was because 20% of the country were from the former Soviet Union, and they had zero to one kids. And they would just assume that their children also culturally would. Um, but it turns out they became very Israeli, and their kids had three to four kids, four mm -hmm. kids. Like, so I found it fascinating that kind of the melting pot and that the culture took, you know, integrated probably some of the best parts of the former Soviet Union and gave them in return some of the best part of Israeli, of Israeli culture, which is family purpose, meaning, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, so I'm wondering the positive things from the former Soviet Union, which let's say, a, at least education-wise um, and career-wise, a strong focus on science, mathematics, space, et cetera. Um, is that something that we're seeing? Do you think the Israeli ecosystem is not from the former Soviet Union? Are they picking that up, do you think, from the from those that are from the former Soviet Union? I, I think there is... Uh a much higher emphasis on the study of science today, uh, let's say if I compare it to 25 years ago, but that's a result of the success of the high-tech industry. Right. So today you know that if you study math and you study computer science and you study physics, there's a clear, uh, there's a clear a career path for you and Got a clear it. career path for you in Israel. The, the first generation Soviet immigration helped establish this, but I think today when people are looking, okay, what's my way you know, to make a good living, what's my way to, to make an impact, et cetera, they're seeing an existing industry that's you know, thousands and thousands of companies strong, and I'm, I'm taking a perspective of looking back 25 years. Uh, that, it, that, wasn't, it wasn't the same thing 25 years ago. So, so the, the so scientists and I the math that's what they see. So the scientists and the mathematicians um, that came overwhelmingly from the former Soviet Union played a major part in the Israeli tech culture. And through that, now the people that go through that, the, that culture from the former Soviet Union or not are now more likely to do science and math. So it, it's, it's one exactly. step, it's two a, degrees of separation. Exactly. That, that's very fascinating. So let's go back to, um, there's a lot of people know each other and we were, were talking about the influence former Soviet Union and people have mm -hmm. on each other in the ecosystem that makes Israel unique. Right. Uh, you're talking a lot about, um, you talked earlier about your former co-founder, your, your current co-founder and you co-founded another company together. How, does you, how did your career come about? Uh, 
and kind of what were the different players that brought you to where you are now? Because you, you do have a very fascinating but also stereotypical Israeli tech career is that you founded a few companies, how you're able to work with people in the ecosystem, the networking. Maybe you can take me back to kind of maybe how you found your co-founder, how you got into the Israeli tech and that brought you and Duke to where it is now. Okay. So, so Iran, Iran Spak, my, uh, my uh, co-founder, I think is, comes from the standard, uh, he was, uh, you know, 15 years in military intelligence. He won the Israel Security Award back in the 80s. What does that mean? Uh, every, does year, if, every year, the, the state gives people that contributed uh, uniquely to the security of Israel, you, usually through technology projects, uh, award. And uh, he did a specific project somewhere in the 80s that the state found what it did he uniquely. Do? I was worth a shot. Come on, <laughs> come on. You think he told me? I don't think he tells himself what he did. He you know, it's all uh, hot. Even 40 years ago, you don't, you don't get away from, uh, you know, from this type of, uh, of, of secrecy. But he basically, after that, uh, he left the army in the early 90s. He was a part of one startup that was sold to Lucent in 99. And at that stage, we're introduced together, and, you know, and we start working together. How, how, are, you, how are you introduced? Okay, my, my, my uh, uh, path is different. So I did you know, about a 10-year military service. After that, went and did a couple of graduate degrees in the States in basically in international law, in law and in, uh, in international economic law, in, in well, what, totally what, unrelated. What, what, what unrelated. Got, wait, what attracted you to that? Unrelated. Always, you know, interested in other places and other countries, etc. By the way, that's a very good path for high tech as well. Remember, Israel, very small market. We need to sell in Japan, and we need to right. sell in China, and we need to sell in the U.S., and we need to sell in the EU. By definition, one of the things you need to do uh, when you are part of Israeli high tech is understand other societies, understand how to interact with them, understand how to sell with them, and to sell in Japan is not the same as selling in the U.S. and not the, sell, the same as selling in Germany or in Sweden. So it's another set of uh, attributes, talents uh, uh, that is needed really to develop a company. Okay, but that I know. You know, I felt it was the right thing, but I did not know that's what I'm doing. I was recruited back in the States to, to uh, uh, interestingly enough, back to Israel to work in a government agency. I was you know, one of the early employees of what is today known as the Israel Competition Authority. Uh, at that stage, it was called the Israel Antitrust Authority. And when I joined, I was employee number 10. When I left, we, we had 90 employees in a government authority. We basically, uh, my, my boss then, uh, Dudi Tadmol, uh, which today has a big law firm right at the building here behind us. He, he really built up the, uh, uh, the agency. And what I discovered, it was that's what I liked, okay? I like building up things, okay? The material itself, uh -huh. ah, antitrust law. I, I, like I didn't how, find that really exciting. I like how you build but the But building, building <laughs> that uh, authority, that was what I liked. So when I was saying, okay, uh, this, I, I treated my stint at government as miluim, you know, as, as reserves, reserves as, as my contribution to society. And I'm saying, okay, I'm now going to the private sector and I'm thinking, okay, what do I like? I like that building something from the ground up. And that's how I came to startups. And since we had a lot of mutual connections, Elan and myself, one of those mutual connections introduced us and 
from there, it's a 25-year relationship. Amazing. And so then how do you guys find um, your, your last company, um, the Extracom? Like, what was the solution around there? How did you guys come together and decide, like, hey, let's do something together? Did you both, were you both working on a similar technology and have a passion for it? Or did your personalities kind of like hit it off? And then you're like, hey, what should, let's find some, let's start a startup together. And then you went to explore. How did that come about? Okay, so, so, so basically we decided we're working together and we're looking for a problem that as a team we can bring a unique technology to solve. So, so the way we work together is basically, Iran's uh, uh, obviously, he's the technologist. Uh, and I, at that stage, operate as the CPO. Okay, so I'm the, pro the chief product officer. And basically, uh, there's a problem. Does this product solve this problem? Does this technology support or enable this product? Okay, and, and we go kind of at that triangle, one, two, three, one, two, three, until we lock into something that we believe we can raise money for, develop, and really take it to market. And in the case of Diuk, we were thinking of the field of location, and we did a few uh, uh, iterations personally going that one, two, three, one, two, three, and, and we discounted uh, technologies, and we discounted the possibilities of doing certain things until we came to something that we said, no, this can work. Okay, right. This can work. And this can work really has Iran saying the technology can be developed and me saying this product can be sold. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's the combination. When you have that, this product can be sold, that technology can be developed, we have that deep tech company right. that needs to be developed. Right. So your, your last company mm -hmm. that you guys, what happened there? How did you develop it? And then... Uh, You're talking about Extracom. Yeah, 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 yeah. When, when you guys met. Right. Um, what fascinates me is that you've co-founded two companies together, mm -hmm. right? So and worked on a third and a fourth. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, like, what is it? When did you like decide, like, okay, it's time to move on? Before you moved on from Extracom, did you say let's do something new as we go and move on? Kind of like, what is that like? Um, who did you, based since your career has been more established than when you're Extracom, would you guys been able to bring in new players together to help? be the first employees, if you can kind of walk us through that. Well, I, th I think it's, it's trying to identify what are the, the, the technological trends. Um, Iran's first company was building a chip for 802.11. 802.11, uh, when they added the B, became what we know as Wi-Fi. So when you're looking into wireless, uh, wireless uh, technology, etc., it's on the path of developing wireless technology. I can note, you know, without breaking any secrets, that Iran for 15 years in the military did wireless technology as well. The military is very big for obvious reasons on, on wireless technology. <coughs> so when we came and looked at the market, we said, okay, what, what, what's missing in terms of how do you take Wi-Fi, think uh, Wi-Fi in the year 2002, and Wi-Fi in the year 2023, and, and see that big gap between uh, ever-present technology that everybody connected to something that was really in its uh, beginnings then. And, and we, with Extracom, we found uh, that there is an ability to create a company and a technology that solves some of the unique problems of Wi-Fi. Extracom, tell us about how you, you first raised money. Uh, I'm curious, how did that go? And what did that partnership kind of entail? And I'm also curious because you've co-founded the, more than one company with the same man. Um, what did that do for your relationship, um, kind of moving forward? Uh, 
Well, t in terms of Elan, Spock, and myself, uh, I'm al always the person that raises the money. Okay. So, so it's kind of like uh, my problem. By the way, if you're looking for how do you stay partners with somebody for 25 years, yeah. one of my pieces of advice would be always have clear separation between who's responsible for what. Is this marriage advice? Okay. Or? This, is, this is partner <laughs> advice, okay? This is partner advice. But, but it has helped, and when I've seen uh, partners clash, it's because, you know, who's responsible? Who's supposed to do right. what? In our case, we always know who's responsible for what, and, and that, that's there in the, in the fundraising as well. Uh, general advice to, to, to listeners would be that when you're raising money, uh, no is just a no. Right. I, I'm sure everybody says that, but it has to be uh, truly hammered in to anybody who's thinking of ever opening a startup, etc. No is just a no. In Extracom, let's say in my seed round, uh, we close the round with three offers within three weeks. Okay? Nice. Okay? My A round, I received over 120 negative, uh, negative results. That means 120 different VCs I pitched to before somebody said yes. Mm -hmm. The only important thing is the one company that said yes. There right. was a B round and a C round and a D round after that. That's right. not the issue. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of creating that differentiation between the A round, the, the seed round and the A round. Three uh, presentations, the seed round, all offers. A round, over 125 presentation, one offer. Right. It doesn't really matter as long as you have that one one offer, so no is only no. What's important is you get the yes and, and you move on. In the C round, and in the B round, excuse me, in Extracom, we, we got an investment from Motorola uh, Venture Capital. Motorola in 2005, uh, six was what is Apple is today. You know, it was the phone everybody was using, it, the biggest communication company in the world, etc. And the number two guy in the company that was heading all corp dev and CSO, CTO, was Richard Nottenberg. Had dinner with him twice in Tel Aviv. That, that's, you know, the extent of how we initially met. Wait, did but you, we kept did you in have touch. exclusive dinner or was it like a bigger no, dinner? No, no, big other founders in the that's company. But yeah. you get to talk to people and you, and you start developing a relationship. Right. And, and in the end, raising funds is about relationships and right. about knowing people. And, and when we started Diuk, our seed investor, our first investor, is a group of U.S. angels led by Richard Nottberger, which we approached. I approached specifically because I've known him since 2005-06. So it's all about building relationships, getting your previous investors, developing a good relationship with them, and taking them to, to your next company. And so, okay. wait, how did, you do, how did you do that? And when you were building these relationships, right, how much were you thinking in mind, like, okay, I'm raising the money because we need this for our company and our technology. How much of that, I wonder, is it remotely conscious or is it subconscious that what I'm doing here is I'm actually building a relationship with somebody and there'll be an opportunity for us to work together and help each other and make a greater impact for more people in the future. Do you, is that part of your perspective as you go and you build relationships with different people, whether different people you co-founded, your first employees, your partners, your investors? I would like to say it is, but it's not. Right. Do you think it's, it's a subconscious aspect? It's, or not really? it's, it just happens. It's, it happens in terms of the relation. I think the people that are really good at this, it is a consideration they take into account. 
Uh, I think uh, in, in our case, and Hans and myself, it, it's just a result of things that naturally happened. It's not a, it's not a self-conscious effort to, to go there and to do to, that. To do that but, but if I needed to, to give a piece of advice, I would say, think about that. It, you know, and it goes both ways, you know, uh, everything that comes right, around go on, goes go around on. and every statement you've, you know, you've heard or said yourself is true in the end. And, and even the global uh, market, you know, for specific markets, they're small, you know. Right. So today when we're doing location that's based on Wi-Fi networks, I'm meeting people that I worked with on different uh, companies 20 years ago, totally unrelated. Uh, we were just two weeks ago at the biggest uh, silicon provider for Wi-Fi in the world, to be remained unnamed. Uh, and uh, I met, you know, the, the senior person of engineering. I met him 25 years ago, 23 years ago in a different company. Was and it a we kind of tied. So it's not a, it's a coincidence, but it's not a coincidence in, in the essence that we're working in a similar field for, you know, for a quarter of a century. And in the end, uh, in the end, you, you tend to cross paths in these. You fields. tend to cross. Okay. So it's tend to you cross paths in Israel because it's a small market. Right. And globally, because you know it's the technology sector. It's not everybody. It's the technology sector, and it's the people working on specific technologies, etc. So how did you bring that into? So those relationships you built, and then how does that go? Also with your investor, I understand. You know, you found something. You have good vibe with the co-founder. Mm -hmm. um, did you, how much was your investor just money? How much is it in a partnership and that you were then able to bring them over to Duke? I, I think that with Richard, uh, we're talking specifically of Richard Nottenberg, uh, which is the chairman of Duke, I think it's, it's much more than money, it's relationship. And, and it's much more than money, it's strategic advice, and it's the board here really operates as, uh, you know, as, a, 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 as an active management of the company. So uh, while he's not an executive chairman per se, because he's not, he's still very active and involved in everything we do. And I think that relationship allows us to grow, to, to grow it further, raise more money, et cetera. Look, uh, I don't think it's that common that you raise from angels $15 million. Correct. Which is what we raised, okay? So we've raised $15 million from angels. We haven't yet gone to a professional round. And we'll go to a professional round uh, you know, post our launch of a product uh, in, in 2024. So it's that combination of relationship, uh, 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 understanding of the market, et cetera, that allows us to do that. So um, quarter two, we're gonna see your product. So if we wanna stay up to date with what you're doing, Gideon, and Diok in particular, what's the best way for us to kind of stamp with your technology and what you're up to? Well, the easiest is diuk.com, ah. and we'll have all the information there, and, ah. and, and hopefully we'll keep it up to date. We won't, you know, ah. lose it as we're running like crazy to ah. fulfill everybody's uh, desire to deploy this. Awesome. So if anyone wants to stay up to date with, with you or what you're doing, we can also, I'm sure, follow you on socials. We'll make sure we'll put that down in the description, mm -hmm. and you can, we can give Diuk a follow and also Israel Tech a follow. Um, I really love this conversation. My favorite part actually was learning um, how you're able to bring the culture and people together and the unique both former Soviet Union employees and the half uh, female engineers in your team. I think that's really great. We have a lot to learn here. So I'm really grateful for you sharing your experience and your expertise. And thank you for joining us on Israel Tech. Thank you. And it was a real pleasure having you here. Thank you, Gideon.